Welcome to Export Stories, a podcast featuring first-person insights from the wide and sometimes crazy world of U.S. exporting. Your host for Export Stories is Betsy Olam, president of Olam International, a U.S.-based export management company. Betsy has made a 37-year career of developing global sales and distribution for U.S. companies. Like you, she loves great stories. You don't have to be an exporter to enjoy the stories we're going to share with you each month. We're so glad you've joined us. Now, here is Betsy to introduce today's podcast. Hello, bonjour, hola, konnichiwa, ni hao, marhaban, and shalom. Welcome to Export Stories. I am your host, Betsy Olam. Thank you for joining us and listening today. I am so excited to have as our guest on this second ever podcast, the Reverend David A. Spann, formerly the director of the Memphis, Tennessee, U.S. Export Assistance Center. While today he may live a quiet, pastoral life in East Tennessee, and I mean that literally, he currently serves as associate pastor at First Church of Nazarene in Athens, Tennessee. For many years, David served hundreds and hundreds of U.S. exporters while working for the U.S. Department of Commerce. And I speak from experience. David was a great help to me and supported my export management business and my clients. So now I'm very pleased to introduce David. Hello, David, and welcome to the podcast. Oh, Betsy. Good to hear you and see you talk to you. You too. Thank you for calling in. This is great. Um, So, David, I thought what we'd do today is uh, first talk a little bit about your personal journey that allowed you or brought you to a career in international business, if that's okay. Sure, that's fine. Okay. So, uh, I know you're from Arkansas, isn't that right? That's correct. And so, can you tell us a little bit about your education in general? Um. I, my, I'm a lawyer, actually, um, educated in Arkansas, practiced law privately for a short while, uh, then worked, uh, went to work for a, um, a, uh, uh, economic development organization. Right. In Hot Springs, was it? Yes, that's correct. Okay. And um, after I served there a couple of years, I was actually approached by the U.S. Department of Commerce uh, to come and and work for them. So I put in my application and uh, went to work in Little Rock, Arkansas, for the uh, district office of the U.S. and Foreign Commercial Service. Now, before you came to the Economic Development District, did you do some teaching? I did that um, after uh, I moved to the U.S. Department of Commerce. I actually taught um, courses on international trade uh, oh. at Webster University for several years. Okay, okay. When you were in school, did you study anything that had to do with international? I know you have a law degree, but... Well, I, my undergraduate degree was in uh, political science. Okay. And uh, so I, I studied political science and, and studied you know, largely how... Um, Governments worked around the world. Prior to that, I was a very avid stamp collector and got my interest in uh, foreign countries uh, early in life. Stamps? Yes, uh-huh. I collected uh, stamps from all over the world for many years. Interesting. Uh, did you have a pretty big collection? 
yes, yes, I still have uh, several albums worth of uh, stamps I've collected over the years. Oh, wow, that's cool. Um, well, yeah, I understand that. Uh, you know, it's funny how yeah, we all have something in our background that that just inspired us uh, to have interest in international affairs and, and the world, you know, the big world out there, you know, even when we're young, uh, seems to be kind of common to all of us in international business. Um, so when you worked for your first position with the Department of Commerce, that was in Little Rock, is that right? Yes, and I was a, a trade specialist with the uh, local office there. And what did that involve? Well, it, that's the, the person on the ground that goes out and uh, works with individual companies. When I first started with the uh, U.S. Department of Commerce, international trade was, um, uh, for small companies, was just unheard of. And if you had a really active company in international trade, maybe 10% of their business was based in international trade. Mm -hmm. So often I went out sort of beating the bushes looking for companies that uh, had exportable products that pretty much had never even considered trying to export and convincing them that there was uh, opportunities there. Wow. You usually think today of uh, the export assistance centers as companies coming to them, you know, because they already have an interest in export. That's very interesting that you really, I mean, you really did help promote exports from the ground up for some companies. Absolutely. Um, were there, was there a lot of hesitation among these small companies? Quite a bit. You have to remember back then, uh, we didn't have the internet, you know, everything. In fact, we, when, when we wanted to communicate with our overseas offices, uh, we either um, did it by phone or by what was uh, telex. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this idea of, of being able to communicate with anyone, anytime, anywhere, pretty much is a recent phenomena that, um, you know, we just didn't have. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of hesitation. A lot of uh, communication was done by paper through mail and such as that. And as a result, uh, you know, it was awkward trying to do business internationally. Sure, sure. Um, did you convince any of those companies in Little Rock to visit potential buyers overseas? No, not really. Uh, most of them, uh, we would work through our offices overseas and introductions would be done through that means. And yeah. We would help facilitate uh, the communication between the companies because of the, uh, the rather slow processes we had to work with back then. Um, so it was a slow, long developing process, but Gosh. we had a number of companies that did make that decision and started looking at their opportunities in international trade and began to grow. Yeah. Uh, nowadays it's not uncommon for a small company to have half of their business international trade and, and right. many have a larger percentage than that. Oh, sure. But not back then. Um, no. do you remember what, what were some of the types of products that were able to start doing export business? Gosh, it was, uh, you know, just you can just name something just about, and uh, it was exportable back then. 
Um, the United States was clearly the leader in many, many technologies. And so not only technology, but simple things, uh, companies that um, made uh, potpourri, uh, companies that uh, had art designs and did uh, designing of, of uh, letterheads and, and just all sorts of stuff. But everything from uh, aluminum foil to, um, uh, you know, radio devices, uh, pollution control devices, just just almost anything you can think of, we were talking with companies and, and helping them explore their opportunities internationally. What was the geographic territory you were working with? Was it just Arkansas in the beginning or? Yes, uh, as an international trade specialist, I actually covered the eastern half of the state of Arkansas. I see. Wow, you know, it. I, I don't think people realize the diversity of products in, in all 50 states. You know, you think of Arkansas as rice and, you know, a Rockefeller or two, but um, I imagine there's quite a bit of diversity even back then of products. Oh, it was, it was huge. It was huge. Um, you know, we were at the time uh, promoting exports of, um, of boats. There were quite a lot of boat manufacturers. Hmm. Uh, the large, you remember the large satellite dishes that people used to have in their yards that were six feet or larger across? Yeah. We had um, several manufacturers of those in the state. Uh, we had oil pipeline uh, people and valves and um, military equipment. And we also helped out with uh, some agricultural products as well, but agriculture really fell under the Department of Agriculture and they have right. a promotional process there as well. Right. But they didn't have a network of uh, trade specialists on the ground like we have yeah. in the Commerce Department. So Incidentally, we worked with lots of uh, uh, farm organizations as well. Okay. There was a company in Arkansas named CR that uh, manufactured a variety of vessels for uh, military applications. Yeah. So this is the, you're talking about the, the 1980s? Is yes, late 1980s through the, uh, I was there in Arkansas for 14 years, I think. Yeah. Oh, okay. I didn't realize it was that long. And what were, you know, were the restrictions very difficult for mili for products that had military application? I mean, compared to today, for example. Uh, yes. Uh, I mean, the restrictions weren't near as uh, broad as they, as they are today, uh, just because it's become more complicated to control them. Yeah. But, uh, uh, yeah, we, we, there are, Special licenses are required for military exports, and and uh, there are special licenses that are required for applica uh, products that have what are called dual applications. Uh -huh. That's something that can be used readily for a, a very specific military purpose as well as a traditional commercial purpose. Did I, I'm wondering about the offices overseas and how they found the partner companies. Did you have... In the 80s, did they have the Gold Key program? And we can explain what that is. But did, did they have the Gold Key program back then? No, they didn't, actually. Uh, the Gold Key program's been around about, uh, really, uh, maybe 20 years, I guess. Um, back in the 80s through the mid-90s, uh, we worked with something called the Agent Distributor Search. Uh -huh. And it was um, paper-driven. 
and it was you tell us what you want to sell and we'll go pre-qualified rep, uh, potential buyers for you and uh, provide you their contact information and then we would follow up and, and help assist with the follow-through communications to make sure that um, letters and what have you were being directed to the people correctly and and so on and uh, just process that uh, work through that process of establishing a relationship with someone. How did those uh, U.S. Uh, commercial service offices, how did they find those companies? I mean, since technology wasn't the same, you know, without Internet and all, how did they find those companies? Well, they pretty much did the same thing on the, in the foreign country that I was doing here. They went out and beat the bushes looking for uh, uh, companies in the country that were in a position to buy a foreign product that is financially stable and reputable companies and uh, that were looking for new sources. And back then when I first started, everybody was looking to buy from the United States. Yeah. Uh, so it was uh, um, finding people that wanted to buy was one thing, qualifying them, that is making sure they were good, legitimate companies that were financially stable was another matter. I bet. Which our officers did a lot of work to, uh, to do to make sure they, they met all the necessary criteria so that U.S. companies could rely on them. How how on earth did they qualify those companies uh, financially? What resources did they have back then? I'd be curious. Well, a lot of times it was just it was on site inspections. You would simply show up and and uh, uh, inspect their facilities and make sure that everything that they were representing to you in one way or another was existed in reality. Um, and uh, Back then, banks were a little, little freer with information as well. Uh, you could go in and ask if such and such a company was credit worthy, and they would tell you. Yeah. Uh, wow. A lot of legwork was involved. Interesting. It, Quite a bit of legwork. Right. Can you explain what the gold key is today? I mean, you, I know you've been going for a little while, but it, it hasn't changed since you retired from the commercial service? Uh, the gold key is essentially uh, a trade mission for one company. Um, you uh, working with the local office, they'll help you identify a likely market for your product. We'll connect with the overseas office in that uh, country, uh, have a conference call to discuss what your goals, names are, the kind of buyers you're looking for and the like. Uh, the office there will then begin uh, exploring the uh, the area for and identifying potential companies. They'll go out and introduce the U.S. company to them through materials that the U.S. company has provided, and uh, they'll decide if they're interested in meeting with the U.S. company. Then the office there will schedule a series of appointments for the for the U.S. firm. U.S. firm travels over there is met by someone from the embassy. Uh, oftentimes they provide additional services such as booking your hotels and such as that. So you make sure you're in a good hotel in a good area and, and, uh, they'll arrange uh, in-country transportation for you many times so that you're not having to figure out how to get around. And oftentimes they will even escort the companies uh, on their visits to the individual companies, uh, sure. there. Um, and as you go work through the various uh, meetings, there's usually, um, three to as many as seven meetings uh, that'll take place over one to two days. They will, uh, you'll meet these companies firsthand. You'll get to see their facilities. 
and uh, really understand um, have a better understanding of who the company is and if it's someone that uh, you can do business with. By the time you leave uh, to return home, uh, you should have a very good idea who you're going to be doing business with there. As you'll recall, David, you set up a number of gold keys for me and uh, I, for um, for me on behalf of my export clients. And I always found it so helpful. I mean, it was just a great introduction to these companies. Often, the like you said, the rep from the commercial service office would go with me or they would find me a driver interpreter which I really needed with me. And that person was usually somebody very professional who would go into the meetings with me and, and help help with translation and and help me understand some of the nuances uh, that were part of the meeting. Personally can say I like the Gold Key service. After Little Rock, where did you go from there with the, the uh, commercial service? Well, I was uh, I took over the office of uh, in New Orleans and became the uh, New Orleans director uh, for or the, actually the director for Louisiana in the New Orleans office. And uh, not long after I moved down there, they restructured the way the commercial service operated, and I became a regional director uh, for um, Arkansas, Mississippi, and Louisiana. And um, was there for. Four and a half years, I guess, and then left from there and went to Seattle and was the regional director in Seattle for um, uh, six years. Wasn't that, covering, kind of a, um, wasn't that kind of a dramatic change from Arkansas and Louisiana? Oh, yeah, very dramatic, uh, very dramatic. And I happened to go uh, move to, uh, to Seattle uh, in 1999, and that was the year that the WTO was meeting in Seattle. Oh, wow. And I don't know if many people, well, I don't know if many people remember this or not, but they had uh, uh, riots uh, and protests and tear gas and all sorts of very interesting things that went on <laughs> in regards to the WTO meetings. I just remember um, hearing was, there were protests. I didn't realize it got that uh, heated. Yeah, the the riots. There was only one or two instances, but they had uh, they would have to break up uh, uh, some instances. But it, it wasn't real bad, but it was very disruptive to yeah. the, the community and the city. And and uh, I think the protesters kind of won out because it very much disrupted the WTO meetings, and uh, nothing much was accomplished. Much investment, little return on it, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's they're still working on some of those issues, I think. Um, but so I know that because I, I used to work up in that area with exports and forest products, of course, is a big part of of that region. But did that fall under the Department of Agriculture or did you work with forest products? No, we worked with we worked with uh, many different kinds of building materials, pretty much the cutoff between agriculture and commerce was when something went from being a log into being uh, a two by four, uh, <laughs> it became ours. If it was not a two by four, if it was still a log or a tree or something like that, then it was remained with the Department of Agriculture. Okay. Uh, what are some of the interesting products you remember from working in that area besides building products? 
Well, before I moved up to uh, Seattle, probably one of the more interesting things I dealt with down in uh, New Orleans was a gentleman that had a, a, a very perishable commodity locked up in customs um, because he was being told he needed some specific form that he, to, in order to uh, move it to Argentina. Okay. Uh, the commodity was uh, bull semen. Wow. Uh, was that container loads of bull semen? No, it wasn't actually that much, but it was it was valued at around three hundred thousand dollars. Wow, is that to create more little bulls in Argentina or Yes, yeah, it was uh, some very highly valued uh, um, breeding semen. It's normally an agriculture uh, product, but because of, you know, the guy needed some immediate assistance and like say, Department of Agriculture doesn't have uh, staff on the ground in a lot of states, um, we were able to step in and assist him with, the, uh, with what he needed to get that accomplished. Oh my goodness. You know, sometimes uh, we have situations where, um, you know, now nowadays nothing is purely made in the United States. Almost everything made anywhere has foreign components in it. Right. And uh, early, very early in my career, I had a uh, company that manufactured uh, communications cable, and this was the the very large cables with uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of little wires running through them. And the way that they would uh, mark those wires so you could identify one wire from one end to the other was with a, a marker thread. Okay. And I had a company that had, a, had received a contract for, I think it was $10 million worth of communications cable into Mexico. But uh, unfortunately, um, the marker thread they needed wasn't available. Uh, they couldn't find enough quantities, so they, but they did find some, and it was located in Mexico, and they, so they ordered it and was having it brought in, and it got seized by U.S. Customs um, oh, because the company selling it to the United States did not have an import quota for te textile material at that time. And he, so here you have a situation where you've got a few hundred dollars worth of, of uh, textiles that are going to hold up a, a $10 million uh, export from the United States over all over a uh, quota issue. Gee. So we worked with the U.S. Department of uh, Customs at that time to uh, arrange a temporary license uh, to bring this these uh, this thread in, so the company could actually manufacture the cable. And they had to certify that uh, you know that yes, they did use this thread for this purpose, and any thread that wasn't used would be returned uh, to the source. Wow. And, uh, yeah, so we were able to save that export uh, by, you know, providing a bridge between two different government agencies. It took some creative work, too, didn't it, to get that done? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Fortunately, we had a, a really good uh, uh, customs officer there in, uh, in uh, Little Rock that was understood, and he just made things happen. So uh, work, it's, it's good when you find those kind of people to work with that just aren't about the rules but want to understand what the rules are really supposed to accomplish and not hinder trade but actually promote U.S. trade. So right. It was, uh, right. It was great. Yeah, really. I mean, you just you can't always just be exactly by the book if you really want to help 
U.S. sell products overseas. I mean, it's it's legal. It's just you got to come up with creative strategies to to do that. As far as like uh, Washington State, can you think of? I know you mentioned to me uh, maybe did you work with some wine wineries in Washington State at one point? Yes, um, actually there was uh, uh, it was quite a broad effort actually the. Uh, uh, most people don't realize this, and they think of Washington State, they think of apple trees and apples and Washington State apples and such as that. But uh, unfortunately, the, the Chinese began growing large orchards full of uh, red delicious apples, and that part of the U.S. Uh, market uh, collapsed because of that. And so those farmers up there were looking for an alternative, and they, they uh, uh, discovered something. They had some rather unique soils and it allowed them to uh, grow grapes in the western half of the state. Now, a lot of people don't realize this, but the western half of uh, Washington state is very arid. Right. But there's an abundant supply of water th with the Columbia River. And okay. that's a pretty, uh, pretty interesting situation because one of the challenges grape farmers in, uh, in wineries in California have is they can't control the weather. You get too much water or too little water, and you, it impacts the quality of the grapes. Well, in Washington State, they have this situation where if you have a very arid climate but plentiful water, you can maintain a constant level of, of uh, moisture to the grapes uh, throughout the growing season. So you don't have to worry about the weather. And it doesn't matter if it's too dry or too wet. It's, not, it's never going to be too wet, and, it's, and you can compensate for it being too dry. Okay. And as a result, uh, vineyards in, uh, in western Washington have exploded. There are hundreds of vineyards in western Washington now. And, uh, but they were having a hard time accessing the international market. And I had a, a trade specialist located in the western part of uh, the state that uh, understood the situation. And, and uh, we worked uh, together. She really, her name was... Uh, uh, Janet, I can't think of her last name. I know she got married, but uh, she led the she led the charge, uh, and I coordinated with her with Washington Wine uh, Association and the um, Western. Oh, there's four or five different organizations that were brought into this thing to help promote it, and we had a really uh, uh, insightful guy that was a a, war, a wine seller. Uh, that knew a lot of wine buyers, and he worked really closely with us and uh, got and convinced uh, in the first year 35 wine buyers to come to um, a, a small town out in the middle of western uh, Washington to test and drink wines for, uh, I think it was three days. Where, where and, were they uh, from, David? Where were some of the countries they were from? Uh, Australia, the Philippines, Japan, Korea, um, I, I can't remember how many European countries were there, but there were quite a few. Uh, but there was uh, a lot of interest. A lot of South American countries uh, were sent representatives. So, uh, so the first year we had 35 wine buyers. The second year we had 70 wine buyers. And the third year they had to turn people away. Gosh. That had to be exciting. Uh, yeah, we got into a bit of a, a hassle with the Department of Agriculture 
uh, over that because uh, they were claiming wine as their product, and we were saying, well, it's really a manufactured product now. It's not grapes. It's it's a it's a produced, bottled, packaged product, and that's usually the kind of thing we handle. Right. But um, we work things out and work th- work together, and and uh, the bottom line is that the um, uh, Washington now has a thriving export market in uh, in uh, wines. Now, had the had there been wineries in Washington State for a long, long time, or did they really start with the uh, what had happened to the apple market? Um, you know, I can't I can't say for sure how long there have been wineries in Washington State, but there were no if there were wineries there, there weren't a lot of wineries. Okay. It wasn't until uh, farmers had to deal with the declining market for red delicious apples in the United States that um, they began converting to vineyards. And it allowed for the development of new wines. So um, it, it was it was really interesting to watch that happen. I mean, a lot of dedicated people, you know, we had a role in it, but there were a lot of other uh, organizations that really came to bat and made things happen. So... Uh, Gosh, that, that's 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 impressive. And well, one of the things that you and I have worked together on are situations where someone fraudulent comes along and makes you think that uh, they're going to, you know, place a huge order with your customer and turns out they're a nobody in the middle of nowhere and they just want your bank account. Uh, let's talk a little bit about fraud stories. I have to say, I've become a little cynical when I get uh, inquiries now, and I think it's actually healthy to be a little bit cynical. You, I know you must have run across many situations where something looked too good to be true. Yeah, no, I mean, um, when I when I retired from the commercial service, I mean, fraud was, a, was an increasing issue, but you know, a lot of it was the, the great thing about most criminals is that they're they're lazy and they're stupid. And so, for many fraud, for most fraudulent activity, it's pretty obvious that things weren't quite right. But yes. you do have people that put in a little more time, a little more effort, develop a slightly better um, uh, fraudulent effort. And it, it, those are the people you've got to watch for. It's like you say, if something sounds too good to be true. It's just time to walk away because it is. Right. But um, the way I used to describe this was, uh, uh, you know, international business is like a pond. You know, on the on the very surface of uh, the on the very surface of the pond, what do you have? Well, usually that's where the scum uh, <laughs> is formed. Yes. And, you know, the, the fraudulent people in the international trade, are, those are going to be some of the first people you run across on occasion because they're, they're trying to promote their fraud. And, uh, but the fortunate thing is, is there, there's not a lot of it. And it's easy to punch through most of that fraud and find all the rich opportunities that lie beneath the surface. It doesn't require a lot of time. It doesn't even require anything in the way of money. Uh, to be able to do this, fortunately, because of the way the Internet has uh, come about. There's information on just about everybody, and you can figure out pretty quickly um, with minimal effort who's real and who's not. Um, You know, one of the most obvious ways to determine if someone's real 
is by the lack of information about them on the internet. Right. Uh, you know, you can't, if someone's real, you can't, I don't care who you are, you can't type their name in without finding a half a dozen lists of, uh, down uh, Google on, on uh, uh, that person or individual or people like them or something. But if someone's not real, yeah. you're, you're, it's hard to find anything. And well, now I've seen across- websites where they're, they pretend to be an organization, but there's always some clue on the website that there's something funny there. Well, yeah. Um, and, and that's the, that's one of the things too about, uh, the internet. It's really easy to throw up a website, but like I said, most uh, criminals are, are pretty lazy and they, and they'll invest minimal effort. They'll have a quote, a web presence. But if you start looking at their website, you know, links don't work and there's really not much to it. And, not a lot of product information about them, not much on their company history. And then if you take any, just about any of the information they provide on the website and start searching it on the web, you can determine pretty readily whether or not a company is, is real or not. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so if you find really basic websites, chances are there's not, there, the company isn't any more real than the website is. And, uh, there's very, very little there to be had. And if you can't find quantities of information on a company in on the web, then you probably need to not be doing business with them. Right. Um, you know, you need to look at things like, uh, are they using, uh, the, when they contact you by email, is their email coming from a dedicated domain? Or is it a generic email like uh, info at, um, you know, gmail.com or is it, uh, uh, XYZ company at, uh, hotmail.com. Oh, right. You know, any legitimate, any legitimate company is going to have a dedicated domain site. Exactly. And the individual that you're talking with is going to have a dedicated email address linked to that domain site, not some, some general or generic, uh, uh, email hot, address. Hotmail. Yeah. Or whatever. Yeah. You, you, you know, if they're real, by and large, they're going to have, uh, that's not a hundred percent true, but that's about 99.99% true. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I've uh, had, uh, situations where this was actually a company that was engaged in some importing and they had unfortunately had a very bad situation happen. They, if I remember, all, I'm not sure I remember exactly all the details, but um, they were looking to outsource the production of a certain part, uh, automotive product, and they found uh, they went looking in uh, China, and they or they were approached by a company in China. I'm not sure what happened, but um, you know, went back and forth and handled and, and uh, arranged to buy these parts from this Chinese company and. When the product arrived, it was basically uh, junk. Oh. Um, and they had, and of course, the, the Chinese company required that they pay up front, and they were out eighty thousand dollars, and they were, you know, wanted to get their money back, and they wanted to make the company pay, and they wanted to sue, right. and all this other kind of stuff. Well, here's the first thing you need to know about suing someone internationally. There's a there's one very firm rule. Yes. If you sue someone internationally, you lose. It's that's the rule. It's impossible. That's the rule. 
It's impossible. Yeah, it's just there's no there's what's legal and then there's what's practical. And as a practical matter, suing someone internationally just isn't practical. Right. Um, if you want to sue someone, um, you sue them here in the United States if you want to. But you know, to get jurisdiction, you've got to serve have service a process. And basically, the way that works is you file a lawsuit here and and uh, instigate the service of process. And that goes to the, the local court. We'll send it to the state um, secretary of state, and they'll forward it on to um, the secretary of state, uh, the United States secretary of state, and they'll work it down through uh, their process over to the U.S. embassy. Eventually, the embassy will eventually serve it on the state uh, uh, office there, uh, uh, who will eventually move it over to the judiciary of that country, who will eventually get it down to the local court, who will eventually uh, provide service process on the um, on the uh, uh, foreign, uh, the, the defendant. Um, that process can take somewhere between 12 months and two years, and you haven't even gone to trial yet. Oh, gee. Chances are they're not going to show up for trial over here, and you can get a summary judgment or a directed verdict against the, the company, and then you take that verdict and you try to have it executed in a foreign country. And, and we go back to rule number one, which is if you sue in a foreign country, you lose. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so you spend all this time, money, and effort, and you, you will have nothing for your effort. Now, there are some attorneys out there that will disagree with me on that, but uh, – uh, I guarantee you, you start looking into this, the sheer cost and time and effort of trying to do this uh, makes it just not practical. You'll never get the majority of companies. So the way to avoid all that is to just be as confident as you can be about the people you're doing business with. Right. And the sad thing about this situation with the auto parts is that if the company had done just a little bit of checking, I mean a very little bit of checking, they could have figured out that this company was not legit. First, because the the, the person they were talking to was using an email for a different company than they were supposedly doing business with. Oh, and wow. when, when you looked at the website for the company they were supposed to be doing business with, well, it became pretty obvious the company they were supposed to be doing business with sold ribbon and feathers. <laughs> There was not one automotive part listed anywhere on their website. So while the company was legit, it was uh, being shadowed. This other, these other people were using a legitimate company as a front and then conducting their business uh, and, uh, you know, committing fraud. Yeah. But with just a little bit of effort, the, the U.S. company could have pretty readily figured out that there was something not right there and could have avoided this loss. And that's the way it is in most situations with just a little bit of effort, right. uh, especially with all the readily available information, you can figure out who's legit and who's not. One of the things I always recommend to companies is if you get an inquiry from some firm that you've never heard of, the first thing you need to do is to send them a, a, uh, a business information request. You know, get, get them yeah, I think you developed a form uh, that was that had just lots of great, really important questions. Yeah, did I provide that to you? Yeah, Bessie? oh yeah, I've used it many times. Okay, 
So, and it's, and it's just basic information, name of the company, their email address, their website, um, you know, what kind of company they are, when, when the, were they organized, what's their tax ID number or their registration number, uh, who is the, the principal officers of the company, uh, describe the business activities, uh, you know, uh, who's their bank, um, what trade associations are they affiliated with? Uh, what U.S. business references can they get? And and the bottom line is, is if you give them this form and they don't fill it out completely, and that's an important word, they've got to fill out the form completely. Yes. If they don't fill it out completely, you put that form in the trash. Because if they can't give you all the information you're asking for, then they're probably not legit. Right. If they don't give a bank, then, you know, that you're not giving them, you're not asking them for their bank account. You're just asking them for the name of their bank and the, and the address. And uh, you're not asking them for, um, you know, their Some anything that would ex expose them in any way. You just basic information that any legitimate company should be able to provide. Exactly. If they're not a member of a trade association, which in many company in many countries, if you're a company doing business, you have to be affiliated with a trade association. Most trade associations are, are quasi-governmental entities uh, in many countries, and they provide regulatory and oversight function. They're both private and public uh, entities, and so you, you have to have a membership. Now, it's not 100% true, but it's quite frequently true. Right. And with this information, you can do Internet searches and pretty much be able to verify the information or not. Um, and uh, like I say, if they leave big gaps in this form, if, it, if they're leaving off critical information like no U.S. business references or no banking information or they don't give you the names of their directors or or they're not affiliated with any trade association, or they leave off their tax ID number or their registration. These are these are critical pieces that any almost any company anywhere is going to have, and uh, it all lends to their legitimacy. There's no point spending more time once you once you as soon as you realize there's something fishy, something doesn't look right, and they they're not willing to fill out the form completely. Just don't waste your time. Uh, yeah, I mean that's the the lesson I've learned. The lesson I've never I must say I, I've never lost. We've never lost any money, but we've spent time. We've wasted time uh, with companies before we, you know, because we waited to really dig into the information. And time is money a lot of times. So yeah, it's and, a and lesson too is. With this kind of checking, even if the company's legit, you can you can start determining <coughs> whether or not they're really the appropriate partner for you. Right. And uh, it can save you a lot of time with companies that may be legit, but just really aren't the best match for you, uh, or even a good match for you. Um, and like I say, it, it, it doesn't always take very much time and and. If you're doing internet searches, it doesn't cost you a dime. Right. Now, the, right. Other, the last thing I would suggest is that if you find a company that does appear to be legitimate, then 
you know, approach a bank that has an international apartment, uh, you know, hopefully that you've got an account with and ask them to, to pull a credit report on. And most banks will do this for, a, you know, uh, some, some will do it for as little as $50 and some will charge a little bit more than that, maybe $100 to pull a report. But that's money well spent if you find out this company's struggling financially. Uh, once again, you don't want to be wasting your time uh, with someone that's just not able to perform. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. Well, I have one last question, David. I just want a, kind of a big picture question. In your opinion, what do you think has changed about the nature of international trade and, and exports from like the early 1990s to now? What, what do you think is different about the way we do business export-wise? Well, it's, it's uh, one word. It's the Internet. Yeah. Um, that has revolutioned, uh, revolutionized the way uh, business is done anywhere. Um, what used to take months uh, and often never and often failed to happen uh, now takes uh, days or weeks even uh, to accomplish uh, what used to take years oftentimes in developing international trade. Um, and, and just being able to readily uh, confirm that people are legit and communicate more quickly and not have to wait for mail to be tra you know, transit the uh, oceans and such, but uh, that immediacy, immediateness of being able to communicate and, and move business along at a more steady pace has, and, and has increased accessibility to markets for everybody and thus has made uh, doing business anywhere in the world uh, a simple matter. Absolutely. I can speak firsthand. My export management business specializes in small companies, small to medium-sized U.S. companies, finding dealers and distributors, and that's directly related to when the internet came about. I started the company in 97 when it was still kind of nascent, and I couldn't have done what I do without the internet, so... Absolutely. <laughs> well, David, I can't thank you enough for being a guest today. It was great talking to you, and you really gave us some wonderful perspective from your experience with the commercial service. So thank you so much. Well, thank you, Betsy. It was, it was a pleasure. It was great talking to you. Thank you so much for listening to Export Stories. Perhaps you have a good export story that you would like to share with us or a comment about today's podcast. You can send your ideas and comments to our website at exportstoriespodcast.com or to Betsy Olam on LinkedIn. Subscribe to our newsletter at exportstoriespodcast.com so we can alert you of upcoming episodes and share resources with you. We're building a community of export storytellers, so please share this podcast with your friends who have interest in exporting. 